we spent our time talking about, uh, if you look at the, look at this chart in your, inside your packet, we spent the time talking uh, primarily about divine authorship, and we spent a little bit of time on human authorship. But I just want to, uh, I want to look at some of the scriptures uh, in regards to human authorship that I don't think we got to last time. So <laughs> remember, uh, very briefly, we saw in the scriptures themselves attesting to this reality um, that uh, all scripture is God-breathed. We see this in 2 Timothy 3, that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy that scripture is the very word of God, breathed out uh, into holy men who have... Um, who were carried along by the Holy Spirit in their writing. So uh, when we talk divine authorship and human authorship, we really have to talk about them simultaneously because God wrote the scriptures, but he had a means in doing so, and that means were uh, the men who, uh, who actually wrote. So um, <coughs> uh, let's look at a few examples of that being mentioned in the Bible itself. Um, Exodus uh, 24, 3 through 4. It's on the middle of your front page there. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And here it is. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Well, what do you assume all that he wrote down was? It's what we now have in the Scriptures. Moses recorded this, the law of God, as it was delivered to him, and it is now delivered to us in the Scriptures. Uh, Revelation 1, uh, 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Well, if you've read the book of Revelation, what is the first uh, few chapters of the book of Revelation? Okay, not quite. That comes after those first few chapters. What's first in the book of Revelation? The letters to the churches. So we see here that we have the very thing that John saw, heard, and recorded. Um, the instruction given to him. Uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. We looked at this uh, recently. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, what is assumed there? That someone's writing something, right? Uh, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So we see here what is required of someone to give credible profession for Luke to include in his gospel. They had to be an eyewitness. And as a result of that, they've been ministers of the gospel. So their apostolic word. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Well, what is that? It's the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So these are just a few examples. But as you work through the Bible you see all of these signposts pointing to who wrote it and the fact that um, they're pointing to the very fact that it was their work. God has done this through them. The Holy Spirit has, uh, has worked through them to bring about what we now have as Scripture. A great quote here uh, from Wayne Groom's Systematic Theology in regards to this. He writes, In cases where the ordinary personality and writing style of the author were prominently involved, as seems the case with the major part of Scripture, 
All that we are able to say is that God's providential oversight and direction in the life of each author was such that their personalities, their backgrounds and their training, their abilities to evaluate events in the world around them, their access to historical data, their judgment with regard to the accuracy of information, and their individual circumstances when they wrote were all exactly what God wanted them to be so that when they actually came to the point of putting pen to paper, the words were fully their own words, but also fully the words that God wanted them to write, words that God would also claim as his. I think that's an excellent explanation of what we're getting at when we talk about divine and human authorship coming together. That it wasn't a mechanical dictation where they heard the voice of God and they just wrote word for word as he was saying, but rather he, uh, he moved them along to write in their own words, in their own style, in a way that in the end God puts his stamp of approval on it and says, this is my word. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So um, this, this all falls under uh, what we talked about last time, the doctrine of inspiration, the inspired Word of God, and uh, we read that definition that you have in your packets uh, last time as to what inspiration is. So from there, what we received was the original text of scriptures. Now, this is very important that we, uh, we understand this, and we have in mind when we are talking about the inspiration when we're talking about the infallibility and inerrancy. In other words, the Bible is, uh, is without error and it is, uh, it is perfect across the board in every way. When we talk about those things, are we talking about the English Standard Version of the Bible? <laughs> oh, the King James? Yeah, we're going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> no, we're not, we're not talking about this, right? What are we talking about? We're talking about the original manuscripts that were written by the apostles, by the prophets. So if you look on your page of definitions there, the top one is autograph. An autograph is the original manuscript or document of an author's work. It's from the Greek word autographos, written in one's own hand. Since no autographs of any biblical book have been discovered, scholars must work with later copies. And we remember last time I showed you that chart, um, and that's on the back sheet of your packet, that um, if people want to seek to discredit the Bible based on the fact that uh, we work from copies of the original autographs, then they also have to discount um, all of these other works uh, that they um, historically have considered to be reliable and never questioned their authenticity. Um, and given the fact that there are so many works uh, that are copies of, uh, of the original autographs of Scripture, they all correspond with one another, um, the evidence is overwhelming to the reliability of what we do have. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But um, it's just important to keep in mind that when we talk about the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, we are referring specifically to the original autographs. Now, with that said, our translations, and we'll work through that in a minute, what translations, how that works, but they are uh, 
they are of the substance to which we can confidently conclude that what we have is uh, very, very near the original. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later, but we could say with certainty that 97% of what we have in our scriptures corresponds with the original. Um, and some of, some of the meaning that may be uh, difficult is simply lost in translation because of the language uh, issue there. So uh, we'll, t- we'll talk about that uh, here in a moment. Um, so as you, uh, I know I have you flipping around a lot, I'm sorry. Um, as you think through the original text of the scriptures, um, remember they're written in uh, Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament written in Greek. Uh, what was the first translation of the Bible? Does anyone know? Of the Old Testament. Other than the original, what was the first translation? The first time it was translated into another language. Do you know? Nope, before then. The Septuagint, right. This was the Greek Old Testament. So this is what the apostles most likely used when they were working through Uh, Their scriptures, the Old Testament, the apostles used what we call the Septuagint. If if you're reading books on the Bible, uh, on the original languages, uh, Septuagint is usually written as LXX, the Roman numerals. Um, And that, uh, that refers to the Greek Old Testament. It was the apostles' translation of the Old Testament for their use in the Greek culture. Um... So they tried very quickly to have everything in the language of the people, which is very interesting as we, uh, as we move on to consider translations here later on in history. So uh, very quickly after the original texts of scriptures were written, obviously uh, people wanted to see those and read those, and so uh, very quickly after... Uh, copies of that uh, copies of that were uh, made, so this is where we get all of the copies uh, that we have all the the uh, the full manuscripts, the partial pieces of manuscripts um, and as a result of all of these copies being made, we have uh, those that are accurate we have those who uh, have made errors in their copying. We have those who uh, blatantly distorted the biblical text in order to uh, meet a specific agenda, and those who use the text, um, like the Gnostics, for example, who sought to create an entirely different religion as a result. Um, So because of that is the importance of uh, what we call textual criticism. Textual criticism is a... uh, a study of, uh, of the scriptures. I have a definition here. The study of texts of the manuscripts and documents of the Bible to discover the best and most reliable and accurate text to translate. Um, before we had a printing press uh, in the 1400s, um, all of the copies that we have were, of course, done by hand. Um, so the need for textual criticism is uh, is a very it's a very important body of study. Um, there's people who are experts of the original languages. Um, they are 
historical, cultural experts. Uh, so as they compare manuscripts and see which, uh, which are reliable, they're able to make those determinations. And as I said before, um, it's gotten to the point that there are so many copies of these manuscripts that we can say with certainty that we, uh, we have um, at least... Uh, 97% accuracy with the original uh, autographs of the scripture. So I think it's important that we be, uh, we be honest about the reality of that. And yes, we believe the scriptures are sufficient uh, without error, uh, that they are perfect, um, that uh, God has communicated to his people as he, uh, as he wanted to and gave us everything he wanted us to know about himself and his work. Uh, but with that, it's important for us to recognize uh, what we mean when we say that. Um, and that we have, uh, we have, through, God has through scholars, through theologians, done uh, a lot of, uh, who have done a lot of work to bring what we have today that we can be very thankful for um, because of where we've progressed in their ability to figure out what is uh, accurate. So, to, with that being said, and, and this is where I want to make sure that we, uh, we emphasize the sufficiency of the Bible, um, because these are areas, and maybe this is a good, uh, a good thing to, to think through, because this is where people want to try to discredit the Scriptures. Because as a result of all this, uh, some of the copies, not a lot, but some of the copies that we do have uh, do not look exactly alike. Um, and there, we can rest assured that there are not disputes about the originality of the vast majority of the copies we have. But there are some, and I'll point them out to you because they're actually annotated in most English Bibles, and you've probably run across them in your own Bible reading, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But this study of uh, textual criticism is important, and if you ever wanted to become a language expert, uh, this might be a good body of study to, uh, to take part in. Any questions about that before I move on? Because it can be, uh, sometimes that maybe rocks us a little bit as we think through that. Okay. Um, now, I put on your uh, I put on your definition sheet there just the names of the uh, the texts that are worked through. If you ever take seminary courses on the languages, um, you will come across these. The standard Hebrew text that is used is called Biblia Hebraica uh, Stuttgartensia. This is, the, this is the Hebrew text uh, that scholars work from. Uh, it is the, the one that is uh, most commonly um, held. Uh, there are two texts that, uh, is worked from, that are worked uh, from in the Greek, uh, and you'll see where the differences come in as we talk about translation. Uh, the United Bible Society has a Greek New Testament, uh, Nestle Allen's uh, Novum Testimonium, uh, we see that used a lot in academia. So uh, when we teach Greek here at Effingham Christian School, that's what we, that's what we use. Um, so uh, these Greek texts, they also, uh, when we come at them, you're going to see how the differences play out when it comes to translation into the English. Um, <coughs> nevertheless, they are, 
uh, they're both um, reliable in terms of uh, them coming from the original. So, what happens in translation? As you consider, we have the divine author, the human author. They wrote the original text of Scripture. Copies were made of those written by hand, passed out to the churches, read in the early churches. Uh, They continue to be copied and passed out. Then we get to what we call the critical text. And the critical text is uh, those, uh, what we have today, what we have uh, in the, the Hebrew text and the Greek text that we can study from if we know those languages. Um, but uh, thanks be to God, there are people who can do the translation because most of us don't have the grasp on the Hebrew and Greek languages to be able to simply open them up and read them. That was a problem in the church for a very long time and, uh, and in, in fact, was used as a sort of a heavy-handed power grab by, uh, uh, by leaders who were, um, uh, who were more interested in their own uh, power than they were in people actually understanding the Word of God. And you even see that today in, uh, in many circles. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. So at this point in the process, a translator has to enter, or later translations, a translation committee, a group of scholars who work together to come to conclusion. Uh, They'll translate the Bible from the source language, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, um, into the receptor language. So in our case, it's English. Bible translation is going on all over the world even today. Just met a missionary last week. from uh, Papua New Guinea, and him and his wife, there are 6,000 people groups in Papua New Guinea, believe it or not. Um, one of them, he, him and his wife are working to translate the scriptures so that they can have the scriptures. Um, it's amazing, an amazing and very difficult work. Uh, so this still goes on today. Um, so the critical text goes to a translator or a committee to translate the word, uh, we get our English translation, and then we get the Bible and get to read it. Um, so this is the process that the scriptures go through to go from, uh, from the Lord uh, to us. So I want, to, uh, I want to help us to kind of see that it's not as simple as uh, we read the Greek text and we come over here and write what that means in English. It's much more difficult than that, and we will see that historically as we walk through uh, the various translations of uh, the Bible. So, uh, before we look at the various um, translations that we have, I want to talk briefly about the various approaches uh, to translating the Word of God. Um, And maybe some of this may be... um, a surprise to you that, well, maybe not, among Christians that don't agree on something, um, and how to, uh, how to go about, what is the best way to communicate the Word of God to the people of God in their language? There's various ideas about how that's to be done. It's much more complicated than it appears, and not all biblical translations are created equal. That's a very important thing to remember and we'll get in, you'll see that very clearly as we talk about the various English translations. Um, 
So some people think that the only thing you need to do in translating is to uh, just string the words together as they're written in the same order that they're written. Who's taken, who's ever studied a foreign language? Most of us, I think. Okay. Um, Is there any language you know of that we can just, as the words are written, we can just go right under them and write the English in the exact same order and it makes sense? There's not a language that exists in that way. So the same with Greek and Hebrew, uh, especially uh, Hebrew. Uh, so let me give you an example. Matthew seventeen eighteen. Let me read it to you. Um, I'll just uh, give you the interpretation uh, straight from the Greek into the English without moving any of the words to make sense in the sentence. And rebuked it, the Jesus, and came out from him, the demon, and was healed, the boy, from the hour that... That's a straight translation of the Greek into the English. Um, Can you imagine reading the entire Bible that way? Uh, It's hard to read one single verse, uh, let alone all of Scripture. So uh, how does, uh, in this case, the English Standard Version translate that? Matthew 17, 18. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. That's a little easier to understand, isn't it? So how do we get that? Well, some translation work has to be done because uh, someone's got to figure out what order the words go in, um, who, the, uh, who the subject uh, is, who the ver- you know, how the verb relates to that. All of these things are very important. Um, so uh, how, uh, what, uh, what rules are used to do that? Um, Well, we have to recognize up front, one of the difficulties is that no two words are exactly alike. Remember, we talked about words earlier. Let me give you an example. What are different ways, if I use the word rock, I can think of three ways that's used. What are they? Okay, a rock that you would find on the ground. What's that? Rock the boat, okay, a boat's rocking, or you're in a rocking chair, whatever, you're, you're rocking. What's, what's the other one? Rock and roll, it's a type of music, right? Um, so we have to recognize that even in our own language, we have single words that refer to many different things. So one of the difficulties is figuring that out. And when you look at various English translations of the Bible, you'll see some of those disagreements about what those words mean coming out. Kaylee had one uh, that she asked me about just this week. Um, They come out. As you read commentaries, you see these different scholars arguing about these things and who thinks what about this. It's not that easy. So um, a lot of difficult work has to be done because words mean different things in different languages and cultures. Um, So... Think of the, uh, the Greek word uh, philio. Who knows what that word is? Philio. Say again? No. Love. Did you say love? Okay, yep. Most commonly, we understand that to be to love. Uh, but that word is used when uh, Judas kisses Jesus. He filioed Jesus. Well... Let's do some thinking here. Was Judas loving Jesus when he kissed him on the cheek? <laughs> no, <laughs> obviously not. 
so we have to recognize that the word there by the writer is being used to, uh, to describe to kiss. So when I tell my wife I love her, I'm not saying I kiss her. I'm saying I love you. It's an affection I have for her. Well, in the Greek, the same word can be used to love or to kiss. It's a, it's a display of affection. But when you understand that, you see all the more how horrendous it is, the fact that Judas kissed Jesus in his betrayal. It was a sign of that affection of love. That's why word studies are so important. But also, we have to recognize that that word meant something different. So the translation there is very, very important. Um, Other issues that come into play, vocabulary, very different. Some vocabularies are very large, some are very small. Um, language, uh, languages put words together differently. Uh, syntaxes, phrases, um, how all of the words are strung together, where the verb goes, where the subject and noun go, and all of those sorts of things. Um, for example, uh, English has an indefinite article, a, an, these are indefinite articles that we use. Greek doesn't at all. Uh, in English, adjectives come before the noun, little English lesson here for you to remember your grammar. Uh, adjectives come before the noun. They modify and they use the same definite article. So, the big city. In Hebrew, adjectives come after the noun and they have their own definite article. So, the big city in English, in Hebrew, would translate the city, the big. So, we have those difficulties as well. So you're seeing that this is a lot more difficult than maybe uh, we might assume. Uh, style also comes in. Various writers use different styles. Um, so when it comes to translation, and this is an important thing to remember, it is not accurate to assume that literal always means accurate. Because a literal rendering of everything in the scriptures may not convey the actual idea that the writer is trying to convey. Uh, Translation is more than just finding words and matching them up. Um, (coughs) So we have to think of uh, all these rules being put into play. um, And what is most important is that the contemporary reader understands the intent, the meaning of the original author. So if I'm having to spend all of my time trying to figure out how these words are strung together to make a logical sentence in my language, um, I'm not actually getting the meaning of what's being conveyed. So that's some of the work that has to be done in translation as well. All right, so two main approaches to translation. One is called the formal approach, or uh, it's also referred to as literal or word-for-word. The other is called the functional approach. It's called idiomatic or thought-for-thought. And I have, I think I put those on your uh, definition sheet. Yeah, formal translation, literal or word-for-word or functional, thought-for-thought. Now, while Bibles will, uh, Bible translations will call themselves one or the other, Truly, no Bible is completely word-for-word or completely thought-for-thought. But some are more one than the other. So we will get to that chart I handed out tonight, that spectrum. 
find mine. I've got several things going up here. This chart right here, and we're going to talk through a lot of these translations, but what this shows us is, uh, and this isn't all, this is just a few uh, English translations to show you where they fall on the spectrum. So the literal word-for-word translation you see on the left side and the thought-for-thought you see over toward the right. John, you want... So find your translation and where you land there. Um, and we'll, t- we'll talk through some of the differences in just a bit. So one of the questions I get frequently, especially around Christmas time, what translation of the Bible uh, should I use? What's the best translation? That's a really hard question. Uh, for a lot of reasons. So uh, it's important to recognize these differences when we seek to approach that question. Each side of this spectrum has their shortfalls. Formal translation run the risk of sacrificing meaning for the sake of maintaining the rigid form of what's being written. So... Yeah, formal translations or rigid word-for-word translations run the risk of sacrificing what the text actually means because it's seeking to hold uh, solid to a specific structure or form. So one of the reasons why uh, the New American Standard Bible, for example, is not one of my favorite translations is because it is very rigidly um, literal. So when you read the New American Standard, um, it's written, it's even written in a rigid form. Uh, whereas most translations organize a passage into uh, paragraphs um, and, and sections so you can read them as a full section, New American Standard arranges it verse by verse. So every verse has a new line. So it's just read line by line. What's Um, for example, if, uh, if I'm reading poetry, poetry is going to have some kind of, uh, there's going to have some structure to it. Uh, it's going to be um, sort of sing-songy. There's going to be some rhythm, some cadence to it. Uh, if we're too rigid in our translation, we lose the beauty of poetry, of the elements that belong in poetry. That's just one example. And so we have this rigid structure where we're just getting the words, but we're not actually getting the feel for what the author was trying to convey. Um, Yeah, especially in narrative form, that makes it very difficult. If we're reading a story, you expect stories to have paragraphs and to, um, to have a certain... Uh, way of flowing from one idea to the next, and you s- we see that visually because of how we how we 've learned to read uh, a rigid form is just going to be a line of verse, a next line of verse, so it 's all separated out, so we don 't get the feeling as we 're reading that this is all one unit that works together um, there are There are people who prefer, and when I do my study, I do this um, to take the text. And to take all the chapter and verse numbers out of it so we can see it as the whole, as it was written. Chapter, verse numbers were added later. So 
to take those out so we can get a better feel for the flow of the text. A too literal of a translation takes that out. We're not able to do that. We're not able to see the flow of thought of the author. The other side of the spectrum, the functional approach, uh, is not always as sensitive as it should be when it comes to wording and the structure of words within the language. So when it moves too far away, it runs a risk of distorting the true meaning of the text. So as you see, the, the, uh, either side of the spectrum really runs into the same error that we're not communicating what was originally intended by the author. So this is the literal versus word-for-word uh, uh, word versus free or thought-for-thought. Thought. Now, kind of on the end of the spectrum, we don't even include it in thought-for-thought, thought, is what's called paraphrases. So paraphrase uh, is it's not even working from an original uh, language text. It is if... Uh, if I open the Bible and I read the verses as sort of an explanation to you of what those verses say or mean. Um, so, I'll try and do one on the fly here. Uh, yeah, a lot of it. It's like, uh, it's sort of a, a commentary verse by verse of the Bible. So, uh, say I wanted to do a paraphrase of John 3.16. Let me think of how I would say it. Um, God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die uh, so that we could have everlasting life if we believe in him. It's a paraphrase of John 3.16. So does that give us the full richness of what was written and what we have and what we understand about John 3.16? No, absolutely not. Um, what are paraphrases useful for? Uh, the only thing I find use in them for is if we, uh, if we kind of check it with our understanding of what the passage is saying to kind of give us a feel for <coughs> what may be conveyed. The problem is a paraphrase is typically written by one person uh, who's worked through the entire Bible to do that. Uh, it's not a group of scholars working together to come to conclusions regarding the original languages. So my suggestion would be to not even deal with them. Um, they're not very useful. Um, we'll talk about what those are um, in a moment. All right, so look at this, but also pull out the sheet I gave you. I think it's in that packet I gave you. It's a long list of dates and translations. Now, I hope you find uh, the, the history of all this to be fascinating. I certainly do. Um, and you're going to see uh, why, why all of this should develop a great thankfulness in our hearts for what we do have in the text uh, because of what uh, men have gone through in the past in order for us to have the Bible that we have. All right, so we mentioned the first translation ever, um, but this is simply the Old Testament, is the Septuagint. That was what was worked from by the apostles. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The first translation out of the original languages, Greek or Hebrew, that we see is what Austin mentioned earlier, which is the Latin Vulgate. 
Vulgate means common. It was translated by Jerome, one of the early church fathers. So in 400 uh, AD, we received what was called the Latin Vulgate. This is uh, the primary text that was used um, from 400 on up till we, uh, till we see uh, really into the early 1400s. Um, it was the text... Uh, that was and still is uh, in uh, a lot of places used in uh, Roman Catholicism. Um, so the Latin Vulgate is where you'll see a kind of the heart of biblical translation begin. Uh, 1380, we get the Wycliffe Bible, John Wycliffe. This was a, uh, a literal word-for-word translation, but it was working from the Latin Vulgate into English. So you can see right there where, as we say, it was a word-for-word translation. Was it really a word-for-word translation? What's that? Exactly. Once removed, because it's not working from the original text, right? It's working from the Latin translation of the original text. But nevertheless, Wycliffe um, progressed translation, and it was very important. Uh, 1388, there was an improved version of the Wycliffe Bible by John Purvey. Now, what happened in uh, the mid-1400s historically? Anyone know? Something was invented. The printing press. Very good. What began in the early 1500s? 1510. Think of a... What's that? Say it. Yes, Protestant Reformation. So what we have within about 50 years, 60 years, the development of the printing press and the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to see kind of this explosion of translations beginning at this point. Um, The first one we see that really uh, was prominent was 1526, the English New Testament by William Tyndale. This was the first translation since the Latin Vulgate to be based entirely upon the Greek text. Now, William Tyndale did not live to see the completion of the Old Testament. He was executed by uh, Rome, by the Roman Church, and his body was burned and thrown into the river. Um, He was actually, he was killed and buried, and the Pope had his bones dug up so they could be burned and thrown into the river, just to make sure. Um, Why? Because he was translating the Bible into a language that the people could understand. That's why they wanted him dead. Um, His uh, famous statement, William Tyndale's uh, uh, famous statement was that he wanted to make the boy that drives the plow in England know more of Scripture than many a scholar. So he wanted to translate the Bible so that the common people could understand it. Uh, 1535, the Coverdale uh, Bible came out. It didn't receive uh, it widespread use. Um, 1537, the Matthew Bible, uh, under the pen name Thomas Matthews. This was really the completion of Tyndale's works. Um, John Rogers was also martyred for doing that by Rome. 1539, we see the Great Bible, which is a revision of... John Rogers' works. It's called the Great Bible because it was, uh, it was recorded on 16 and a half by 11 inch pages. 
So when you see those big family heirloom Bibles, those great big huge things, or pulpit Bibles sometimes you see in churches, that's where it comes from. It's, uh, it's hearkening back in memory to the great Bible, uh, those, those great big things. All right, 1560, the Geneva Bible. Oh, by the way, the great Bible uh, was the first English Bible that was read in the Church of England. And that was the first one that really became popular among the common English-speaking people. Uh, So we start to see a progression of uh, the church beginning to accept these translations. It's the first one read in the Church of England. 1560, the Geneva Bible, William Whittingham, um, which was a complete revision of the English Bible. Now, here's a little... Uh, little history of the Geneva Bible. Uh, they called it the Bible of Shakespeare, the Bible of the Puritans, and the Bible of the Pilgrim Fathers. So it was well respected, but the marginal notes, the notes, it was like a study Bible, the notes were all Calvinistic in nature, and so the bishops of England were unwilling to use it in uh, the English churches. But they knew that the translation was better than what they had in the Great Bible, and they really badly wanted that translation for themselves, so they recognized they needed very quickly to, uh, to do something of their own. So the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, oversaw the revision of the Great Bible. It was called the Bishop's Bible, completed in 1568. I don't know if I... Did I put... Yeah, that's on there. Um, So now we have the Geneva Bible. We have the Church of England who wants their own revision of the Great Bible. So who's left that decides, oh, we need an English translation? Who else is there? Rome. Roman Catholicism decided, oh, well, let's get on the the bandwagon. We've already put a few people to death for this, so now we might as well jump on board too and uh, have our own English translation. So the Roman Catholic Church um, wanted to uh, have an English translation to include marginal notes uh, in very much the same way uh, as the Geneva Bible, but this was to support Roman doctrine. Um, But the translation was... uh, quite inferior to the others because it was based on the Latin Vulgate and not on the original text. So the Geneva Bible, uh, you can actually, uh, there's been reprints of it. You can get a Geneva Bible today and read uh, what uh, was written there. Very uh, very helpful in study. Um, what's that? The language of the translation? Yeah, because it was you know the language of the day. Um, But the notes are very, very helpful. Very good. Um, Now we get into the period of time, and Scott alluded to this earlier, that uh, even today is uh, a hot issue to discuss among some people. It's kind of fading out a little bit, but there are a a very vocal group of people. Um, And that is 1611 what is called the Authorized Version, also known as the King James Version of the Bible. Now, when we talk about translations, it's very, very important to understand um, where the King James comes from. 
And some places would run me out of here and try and hit me with their car for saying this, but the King James Version of the Bible is inferior to other English translations that we have today because of what the translation was based upon. Now, the reason I say that some people would be very angry at that statement is because some would argue that since God has inspired his word to be inerrant and infallible, that uh, God has one language that he preserves his word in throughout time, and that word, that language currently is English, and God's holy, inspired, inerrant word is now contained in the King James Version of the Bible, particularly the 1611 version of the King James Bible. And so if you don't use the King James Version of the Bible then you're not using the Word of God, you're using a distortion of the Word of God, and it is, um, some would go as far as saying it's heretical. <laughs> uh, it's crazy. Uh, there's a great book by uh, Reformed Baptist pastor James White called The King James Controversy, and uh, he had people writing him letters and death threats and everything else as a result uh, because he brought this out. Nevertheless, um, the King James Version did progress translation a great deal. But the original authors of the King James Version would not even agree with what uh, King James-only adherents believe today. They themselves understood and, uh, and wrote in the introduction to uh, the King James Bible uh, about the fact that they were undertaking something that wasn't going to be very popular and they recognized that. Um, but even in the 1611 version, uh, we see various um, revisions. There were even two copies up front that didn't agree with the, each other. Um, the, two were, uh, the two editions were named after their differences in Ruth 3.15. There was a he edition and a she edition. The, the he edition read this. He, Boaz, went into the city. The she edition reads, She, Ruth, went into the city. So which one is it? And I would argue with a King James only adherent, um, if this was the infallible, inerrant word of God in English, uh, we wouldn't have these discrepancies. Very much the same way I would deal with someone who holds to the Book of Mormon and yet has seen many revisions through time. Um, yeah, okay, good. I was about to get that. It's what we call, uh, and I put this on your definition sheet, the King James comes from what's called the Textus Receptus. Uh, this was uh, in, I didn't mention this, in 1535 Erasmus, uh, came with a Greek text. And uh, the uh, King James is based upon Erasmus's Greek text. Um, now, the problem with it is, in 1611, and even before then, when in the mid-1500s, when the Textus Receptus was developed, um, they only had a uh, a few copies of the uh, of the manuscripts since then thousands have been discovered so and and those ones that have been discovered are 
older than the ones that were used for the Textus Receptus. So it was a limited amount of text uh, that was used in order to develop the King James Version. Since then, uh, they now have what we call and what we have and what I use and study is called the Eclectic Greek Text. It's compiled by the various manuscripts, all the ones that have been found into one. So really what we have is kind of two ideas of translation when it comes to the Greek text. Some hold to the Textus Receptus, which is later manuscripts, few in number. So King James Version uh, kind of originated that. The other used the eclectic Greek text, using multiple manuscripts, older and newer, and seeing the agreement between them as we walk uh, through the translation process. It's another reason why I would say that uh, the King James Version really is inferior to a lot of uh, more modern translations in the English. Um, Now, even those who wrote the King James Version understood over time, uh, language changes. So, uh, different... uh, Different translations are needed to keep up with the language. I guarantee you, if, if any of us were to pick up a true 1611 King James Version of the Bible, uh, we wouldn't even be able to read it because the language uh, was so different and the way it was even printed was very, very different. Uh, the lettering, the way words were used, the way they were organized was very, very different from uh, because it was a, a sort of, uh, it's an academic Uh, way of writing that we're not accustomed to because it's not in anything that we read. Um, We're out of time. All right. Well, we will pick up there uh, next week and finish through the various translations. Uh, We get into some really interesting uh, historical things as we walk through this. I hope this is helpful, interesting to you um, as we continue to consider Uh, the Bible itself. Um, My plan is to get through this, translations, and then we're going to back up and we need to understand how can we we trust the fact that these 66 books are the ones that the Lord desires for us to have and not something else. How is it, uh, now we've talked about authorship, that's part of it, but how did it come to be? Why these 66 books and not something else? Um, Was it a church council or was it uh, a pope? Or I hear you hear all these various ideas about what that is. So we'll talk about that as well. And then from there, we're going to kind of transition, move right into working through uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And that could take us a very long time. So uh, that's, uh, that's our next step after this. Any questions or comments before we close out? Yes. Copies. Uh, various places. Uh, there are translation uh, groups that exist in different places of the world that have different parts, different copies. Um, mainly, um, mainly universities and things like that where people are working to come up with translations. The archaeological information and all that. Yeah, there's um, I'm trying to think.
trying to think of the name of the there's there's been a book written to talk about a lot of that stuff and where it was found and uh, one of the major um kind of uh, honey holes for uh biblical texts was the dead sea scrolls um you can read about that and um of course the discovery channel has tried their best to add uh, to that and what that really was but uh um there, there have been a lot of things written about those things. So uh, it's pretty interesting if you're interested in the historical background of where we got the Bible and how we have those copies and stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I can't read. John, you remember in the, um, uh, in the book by Ed, Brian Edwards, does he talk about where the original copies were found? Right. Yeah. So he just has a brief. Okay. All right. I'll f- I have a stack of books on this, so I'll figure out which ones reference it if you're interested in reading more. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, Thomas Nelson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just Jesus, which is, uh, (laughs) it's blasphemy, because Jesus was the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, um, and they've completely omitted that. Uh, We we can talk about that more, because a lot more of those things come up when you get into, like, uh, the revision of the new... Uh, the new international version, the today's new international version, they go gender neutral. So um, what that means is you take away the... uh, There are parts where the... um, We refer to God as a male entity. You take that away. That God is just kind of neutral in terms of gender. So those things exist uh, in translations that are on bookshelves uh, today. So th- that's why, and that's why this is so important. Because if you walk in a bookstore and you see all these versions, how in the world do you know which one to choose? Because every single one of them tells you, uh, this is, you know, this is the latest and greatest and we did this and that. Um, you got to know what you're looking at and how to direct other people in figuring that out. So, Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Well, and you, I mean, you can find, they have the green version of the Bible. So we're going to emphasize, instead of the red letters of Jesus, we're going to have the green letters of everything that refers to something environmental. Um, I, you just go on and on and on. They, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, those aren't green. <laughs> those might not even be in there. Yes. Um, for the elders, top of the list, English Standard Version, uh, New King James Version, um, the uh, New American Standard. I use, I use, I, these are the three, I use, uh, when I study, I really study from three or four versions. So those are the top three. Um, I'll reference King James uh, every now and then. Um, yeah. I wouldn't go any further on that chart than the NIV. Um, and even that, uh, there's a lot in there that I would struggle to... Uh, 
It is. And because of all these things that, you know, we're talking about, because translation is so difficult that some verses, different conclusions are reached. And so we need to read those together to come to a conclusion about what, what the idea of the... So every week when I'm working on preparing for a sermon, I'm reading, I'm not just reading one version of the Bible. I'm working through three or four different versions um, along with the uh, original text to try and figure out what is what does the author really mean here. Sure, and and I think uh, you know as I mentioned before, some of those things, if we're trying to get a feel for uh, kind of a, a commentary on what's being said here, we just have to go to them recognizing this is someone's this is someone's opinion on what uh, how they would uh, how they would explain what the the text means in English. It's sort of an explanation of it, but it's not uh, there. We have to recognize going into it, the process they're using to do that, they're not shooting for a literal translation. Absolutely. And one thing, if you're reading Christian books and you see the author starts, every time he quotes a version, of, uh, uh, a passage of Scripture, he's citing a different version every time, red flags should go up because what's he doing? He's finding the one that matches what he wants it to say. <laughs> That's a problem. Because there are enough translations out there that we can start to pick and choose and make, it, make the Bible say what we want it to say. Um, that's where we get into some deep, deep grass. So. All right, let me pray and we will uh, be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much uh, that you've given us this time. And I pray, God, that... Uh, this uh, is profitable to all of us as we consider these things and work uh, through these uh, things in our own study as we, um, as we help others to understand uh, the process that has been gone through. Um, as, we, uh, as we understand the historical significance of the English Bible we have today, of the many men historically who have given their very lives uh, so that we can hold um, the Holy Scriptures in our hands and read and study them uh, here in this place and in our homes. Lord, we are so thankful for that reality, and we pray that you, uh, that you would work in our hearts a great thankfulness uh, for what they have done for us, what you have ultimately done through them on our behalf. Uh, so we pray, God, that, um, uh, that we would have a greater desire to know more of your Word and not just historically and not just about translations, but most importantly, that we would know uh, the true meaning of the Scriptures, that we would trust uh, the sufficiency and the reliability of the Scriptures, and that the Scriptures would be our sure, unmovable foundation, uh, that we uh, can rejoice in uh, who you are and what you have done, and most ultimately what you've accomplished for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in his name we pray. Amen. All right, have a good night.